The war leader stood in the clearing amid the forests of his homeland. As the breeze blew over the grass, his thoughts turned to his childhood. He remembered learning how to hunt and how to survive in the sometimes harsh environment. He recalled what he had seen and felt during his vision quest, things he had never shared to anyone. This had all served him well, for now he had to lead his people against a mighty force. This force had already taken much, and now it threatened to take away the land his people had owned for centuries. If he did not act now, it was only a matter of time before everything he knew would be gone. The war leader understood that if he acted, it could mean his death or the deaths of those following him. He turned back to the small crowd beside the campfire, knowing what he needed to tell them. When it comes your time to die, be not like those whose hearts are filled with the fear of death, so that when their time comes they weep and pray for a little more time to live their lives over again in a different way. Sing your death song and die like a hero going home. Tecumseh, Shawnee Tribe. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. This season will take a detailed look at the lives of five men who exemplify some of the crucial virtues of life. And from these examples, you'll be inspired to cultivate a life of virtue of your own. Welcome to Episode 1, The Unity of Tecumseh, hosted by Scott Einig. With insight from Peter Cousins, author of the books The Earth is Weeping and Tecumseh and the Prophet. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to ally his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is unity. Unity is defined as forsaking one's own personal gains, accomplishments, and goals, and working with others to achieve a common goal. While there are many virtues we can accomplish alone, unity is not one of those. It needs a group. It needs an army. It needs leaders. Unity knows that as long as we work together, greatness can be achieved. It is a virtue that reminds us that a single man can do amazing things but a group can reach heights that no individual could ever hope to reach. One of the 19th century's greatest models of unity is the Shawnee war leader, Tecumseh. His great skills of oration, warfare, and sense of pan-tribal identity reached their greatest heights in the build-up to the War of 1812, when he began building an army to fight Western expansion. In 1768, Western expansion had slowly become a threat to Native American tribes living in what is now Kentucky and Ohio. The Indians had nothing to fear from individual trappers and traders, and often their trade goods helped improve their way of life. 
But when they saw buildings being erected and boundary lines being set, they realized that this supposedly temporary encroachment appeared to now be a permanent situation. To make matters worse, the Shawnee tribe discovered that millions of acres of land had been sold to the British by the Iroquois tribe, who had no claim to the land. Despite this betrayal and the difficulty of their widespread dispersion, the Shawnees knew they had to act before matters grew worse. The, the Shawnee, they were, they were a loose assemblage uh, at best, and they were a, a tribe that through most of its history had been um, dispersed rather than together. I mean, in the, in, before Tecumseh's birth, uh, before the 1750s, the tribe had been dispersed uh, it, everywhere from uh, Western Maryland to Western Pennsylvania to the Shenandoah Valley. It turned, some Shawnee turned up in, uh, in modern day central Illinois. Other Shawnee actually migrated south and became part of the Creek Confederacy. So, and their values uh, were very, it, it very little different from that of other tribes in the Midwest. That's one thing that can be said of the, of the tribes north of the Ohio and in the Great Lakes area is that there really were very few differences uh, between the tribes. And, and probably while they got along well and were able to uh, form alliances better than the tribes in the West. In March of that year, Pukeshinwa, the leader of the Kispakotha band of the Shawnee Nation, and his pregnant wife made a journey to the town of Chillicothe to discuss what they needed to do. She was due at any time, but the urgency of the meeting demanded they still make the journey. One night, his wife went into labor and a shelter was quickly erected. Just before the baby was born, a meteor streaked across the sky. This was seen as a mighty sign from the spirit world. The baby was named Tecumseh, which means shooting star or blazing comet. Tecumseh was uh, born in 1768 in what is today uh, Southern Ohio. At the time of his birth, westward expansion really had not yet begun. He was born uh, just a few years after the British defeated France uh, in North America and, and France lost its North American holdings. Uh, and the British actually, uh, the year before Tecumseh's birth had issued a proclamation uh, prohibiting uh, colonists from settling west of the Appalachian Mountains because the British did not want to provoke an Indian war. So there were just a few settlers who crept tentatively over the Appalachians and a few surveyors uh, who crossed the mountains on behalf of uh, people like uh, George Washington and other planters who were looking to the day when that land would open up and they could stake claim to it, uh, legitimate or otherwise. The first years of Tecumseh's life were marked by slowly growing turmoil. The time for war had come, and Tecumseh's father and 13-year-old brother Chisikau were preparing to go into battle. In 1774, in what is now West Virginia, Pukishinwa attacked the army of Colonel Andrew Lewis in Point Pleasant near the Ohio River. Despite the Shawnees' courage and fighting skills, Lewis's army held its ground and managed to fight them off. Chisikau returned from the battle with the grievous news that their father was dead. The family was plunged into mourning. Tecumseh's mother was left to raise Tecumseh and his three siblings. To make matters even more difficult, she had been pregnant with triplets at the time of Pukishinwa's death. America's war for independence had now broken out, 
and Tecumseh's mother decided to move her family away from the violence. But wherever they moved, the violence always seemed to follow. Tecumseh regularly saw villages burned, bodies buried, and military groups coming and going. During these crucial years, he became especially close with Chisikau and his older sister, Takuma Peace. These two managed to fill the roles that his father would normally have taken in his development. In these early years, Tecumseh showed signs of future success. He clearly from, from boyhood had the markings of someone who had a, had a good future as a, uh, as a war leader. His father, who died when he was five years old, was a recognized Shawnee war leader. And uh, his elder brother, who went on to raise Tecumseh into manhood, was also an acknowledged war leader and, and a, a good fighter. So there was an expectation that, that he would achieve that. Even as a boy, Tecumseh had this, the sort of charisma that drew other boys to him. And he was sort of always the, the leader of the gang. Uh, so to speak. He was a, um, uh, an excellent hunter, excellent marksman, did, did well uh, as an apprentice on, on raids, and uh, again, had a very, very charismatic uh, personality. He was, he was handsome, he was, you know, well-built man, and, and just naturally uh, drew people to him. And of course, they would have been inclined to be drawn to him because of the clan into which he was born and because of his illustrious uh, father. His brother taught him the ways of the Shawnee life and how to hunt and fight. His sister taught him a sense of morality, respect, and honor that he would carry throughout his life. Tecumseh also learned the importance of public speaking, a skill that eventually played a crucial role in his fight against the United States. During this time, he became very close to one of the Shawnee's white captives, who would go on to write about Tecumseh's early years upon his release. His name was Stephen Rudell. Rudell was adopted into the into his particular village, and they were both twelve. And Tecumseh already had had a couple of uh, young American captive friends, and uh, I mean, he and Rudell just they just hit it off. And I have no doubt whatsoever uh, that Tecumseh spoke pretty good conversational English. Rudell became fluent in Shawnee, and obviously they they learned the languages from one another. Uh, to an extent, and uh, I mean, they were they were inseparable uh, for for the uh, oh, nearly I say nearly 18 years that Riddell lived among the Shawnee. Riddell was one of the, his first followers, uh, as Tecumseh was an emerging war leader. So he was able to document and left again a, a wonderful memoir of of young Tecumseh's life. It was soon time for Tecumseh to have his vision quest. The vision quest was the Native American rite of passage from boyhood to manhood that every tribe member underwent. He would spend time in solitude, fasting and praying and waiting to receive his guardian spirit. It is unknown what Tecumseh experienced, as it was forbidden to reveal to anyone else what he had seen, but it was nonetheless a success. Despite his youth, Tecumseh was now seen as a Shawnee man. While he was similar to many in his tribe, he differed in certain ways. Though he had the makings of a great war leader who had the ability to draw people to him, he also enjoyed doing typical social activities by himself. 
the, the Shawnee and most other Indian tribe Indians were very sociable people. I mean, I just liked to be together, like to spend time around the campfire at night, swapping stories. Tecumseh tended to be sort of a loner. He, he liked to hunt by himself. Generally hunting was a, a, a family affair uh, where wives would accompany their husband and uh, on winter hunts or the fall hunts and only the elderly um, or the infirm would stay in the in the permanent villages. But he, he really liked to be out by himself. He, despite his charisma, despite his ability to attract followers, he, for a good part of his life, tended to prefer solitude. Kind of like Crazy Horse in that respect. One of the crucial incidents that would help make Tecumseh a respected war leader took place in the mid-1780s. Chisica allowed him to join a war party he had organized in an effort to disrupt the flow of trade goods by Kentucky soldiers. When fighting soon broke out, Tecumseh was terrified by the sudden violence and fled to safety. He saw his brother lying wounded on the ground and summoned the courage to return to the battlefield to save him. He would receive forgiveness for his cowardice, but the incident forever marked the young Tecumseh. He told himself that he would never again flee from battle. Over the next few years, he would work to develop his reputation as a courageous fighter. In one particular raid in 1788, he charged to the forefront of the fighting and was said to have even eclipsed older and more experienced warriors. They adopted the practice of taking prisoners for assimilation, which was a common Shawnee practice. The Shawnee and the Woodland Indians of the, of the Midwest in general, they, they, they were not racist and they would, uh, they tended to adopt captive white children, women, and to a great extent men into their tribes uh, through a number of rituals to really kind of to, to keep their numbers from being depleted because these were not large tribes. Now, each warrior could decide the fate of uh, a captive that he took and no one else was permitted to interfere by, by Eastern Woodland Indian custom. And for the unfortunate ones that were not adopted, they were, they were tortured horrifically to death as a rule. This was the fate of one of the raid's captives. Upon being brutally tortured, he was killed by being burned alive. This senseless killing so disgusted Tecumseh that when he became a leader, he forbade torture and execution of captives. The raid and the aftermath showed two sides of Tecumseh that he would carry throughout his life. The warrior devoted to both civility and victory. He was a quintessential Shawnee man, except in, in, as it pertains to leadership in, in one very significant way. Tecumseh, from the time his opinion ma mattered at all, from his his late teens onward was was dramatically opposed to torture. I mean, he was he was dead set against it, and he he did intervene in contrary to Shawnee custom on a number of occasions to to uh, to prevent the torture of prisoners. So in that respect, he was um, unusual, not unique, but unusual. And such was his charisma, his his uh, power of his presence that no one. Uh, sought to punish him for interfering in their prerogatives to torture prisoners. So I think in that way, he was uh, unusual. And uh, ultimately, that, that trait stood him well uh, when he fought Americans, and that became known as one of his characteristics. His brother Chisikau had become a respected and feared war leader by this time, 
but this status would not last long. He had been making plans to build an alliance of numerous tribes with the goal of creating one unified tribe, known as a Pan-Indian Confederacy. His plan was to take a fort known as Buchanan's Station. Despite vastly outnumbering the troops in the fort, they were not able to take it. Chisika was killed in this conflict. Tecumseh, who viewed his brother like a father, was now looked upon for leadership. The Indians had recently formed alliances with the British, and Tecumseh had joined with other groups and tribes. By 1794, the Confederacy spirit was alive and there was confidence in the air. The United States had been busy building forts and gathering military strength in the region. Eventually, the two forces met in what became known as the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Though Tecumseh did all he could, he would be repelled again and again until he was clearly defeated. His remaining forces fled to the British outpost of Fort Miami, but, wanting to avoid an attack by the United States, the British did not let the Indians inside the fort. This incident forever tainted Tecumseh's view of the British, and he would never fully trust them again. The Battle of Fallen Timbers had not only ended a decade of fighting over the Northwest Territory, but had nearly destroyed the Indian Confederacy. Many tribes abandoned the cause altogether, while others signed a treaty with the United States. This treaty, known as the Treaty of Greenville, seemed like the only chance for peace in the minds of many tribes. Tecumseh, however, did not sign it or even show up to the treaty's formation. One man who was present at the signing would not only go on to become president, but would go on to become Tecumseh's chief rival, William Henry Harrison. William Henry Harrison, he was a very ambitious man politically. You know, he was governor of the Indiana Territory when he first assumed the post. Uh, it comprised almost the entire of the modern Midwest and then was gradually uh, chipped away at until it comprised just essentially modern day uh, Indiana. He was looking uh, progressively toward becoming governor of a state, not just a territory. Uh, but William Henry Harrison was an erratic character. Um, he gave way to his inner fears quite easily, and he also gave way to his avarice quite easily. Um, but he was never an exterminationist. He, he shared in uh, uh, Jefferson's view that um, the best thing to do would be to try to get the Indians to be full-time uh, farmers, uh, run up larger debts with uh, American traders. They'd be forced to sell off their land and, you know, Get, get them onto smaller chunks of land in the Midwest so you can open up a majority of it to, to white settlement. And those who uh, opposed it, uh, fight them or push them west of Mississippi. Tecumseh now began to focus on survival. His following of 50 warriors and their families settled near Whitewater River in present-day Indiana. The next decade was a relatively settled and eventless time. He married twice and produced a son and a daughter, but both marriages failed. At the beginning of the new decade, tensions began to mount once again. Tecumseh saw many tribes continuing to allow the United States to buy their ancestral lands. The Louisiana Purchase in 1803 effectively cut off the hope of moving west if the need to escape the United States arose. Even worse, a smallpox epidemic hit many tribes in the area, killing many and further decreasing hope in the Confederacy. But in this increasingly hopeless time, the most unlikely of people would prove the gateway to Tecumseh's resurgence, his younger brother, Tanks Watawa. 
He was uh, he was an alcoholic from from his teens. He was an inept from boyhood. As a, as a boy, he shot one of his eyes out with an arrow. I still can't figure out how he did that. And he was never a, he was a terrible hunter. He was never a good warrior. He was a wastrel, alcoholic, a womanizer. And he essentially, uh, I mean, he essentially sponged off Tecumseh and off his elder sister and her husband. Uh, he was, and he, you know, he tried his hand at, at medicine, that is to say, you know, na natural healing. Not very good at that. Uh, but Tecumseh, I mean, I think he always loved him and uh, and, and tolerated him. And uh, more is the credit to Tecumseh for that. Tecumseh and Tankswatawa were as different as two people can possibly be. Tecumseh was a respected war leader, skilled orator, and a dignified man. Tankswatawa was an outcast and a family disgrace. But this was soon to change. Sometime in 1805, he experienced a life-altering spiritual vision. He claimed his soul had traveled to a fork in a road. One fork led his people to a heavenly paradise, while the other led to eternal damnation. When he returned, he knew it was his duty to tell his people to reject the influences of the United States and other European traders, especially in regards to alcohol, and to re-establish the traditional ways of the tribe. Almost overnight, Tankswatawa went from rejected charlatan to respected religious leader, from being called Noisy Rattle to being called the Prophet. Though Tecumseh did not adhere to all parts of his brother's message, he nonetheless saw how it could influence his ultimate goal of pan-tribal unity. There was some division of, of responsibility between them, and it was always, to, to an extent, a symbiotic relationship, uh, in which Tecumseh eventually became the, the leading factor when the political military aspect of it became, uh, you know, predominant. And uh, they did respect one another, they got along well. They, uh, Tengswatawa uh, came to embrace Tecumseh's uh, vision uh, with respect to uh, uh, dispossession of, of land and the need to, to form a political alliance, just as readily as Tecumseh had uh, embraced his brother's religious and cultural revival movement. He was one of Tengswatawa's first converts. Together, the brothers formed a new village known as Prophetstown. Initially, the brothers had difficulty persuading other tribes to join with them, but eventually the reality of United States encroachment became too evident to ignore. Other tribes realized that, uh, that they better join with Tecumseh and that his notion of, you know, we are one people, this land belongs to all of us, and if we don't stand together, we're going to be driven into the, the Great Lakes uh, separately and and, uh, and destroyed piecemeal. That began to, to take on uh, more and more appeal to, to tribes you know, far and wide in the Midwest. It wasn't long before many tribes came to the village. Tankswatawa had by now become a great orator in his own right and knew what to say to persuade people to Tecumseh's cause. At one point, he even predicted an eclipse to show how capable he was as a spiritual leader, though this was likely taken from an almanac. Tecumseh himself had been courted by the British close to Canada, who wanted to form an alliance with him in case they should go to war with the United States. Though Tecumseh did not agree to unite with them, he used his powers of oration and sheer presence to gain respect from the British and other Native Americans present, 
and above all, to show that his confederacy was to be taken seriously. Though things were looking bright, it was not to last long. The brother's enemy, William Henry Harrison, had been using his influence as Indiana governor to claim as much Indian land as possible. The fateful Treaty of Fort Wayne gave Harrison an estimated 3 million acres of land for only 2 cents an acre. Harrison convinced the Indians to sign it by strategic diplomacy, making false claims about the United States, or with outright lies. Tecumseh considered the treaty robbery, and it prompted him to continue amassing his alliance for the inevitable fight to come. While he respected them, Harrison came to view the brothers as a hindrance to his own political goals. He had a great deal of respect for Tecumseh. Uh, he said, you know, under different circumstances, Tecumseh could, he was like a, an Indian Caesar and, and could have, uh, under different circumstances, uh, created uh, something akin to uh, the Incan Empire or the Aztec Empire. And so he had a, a high regard for Tecumseh's ability and initially for those of the Shawnee Prophet as well. But, you know, he, he um, alternated between admiring and loathing the Shawnee brothers. It was always a contentious relationship, uh, almost always. Actually, at the very beginning, uh, Harrison in, in the uh, 1806, 1807, Harrison thought he might be able to uh, make use of Tenskwatawa, that maybe, you know, his, his program of, of bringing sobriety to the Indians might be a good thing. But he, he quickly uh, disabused himself of that when he realized that they were not going to play along with these uh, uh, quasi-fraudulent land deals that he was perpetrating. Um, so it, it was near, nearly always a contentious relationship. Tecumseh and Harrison eventually met in 1810 at Vincennes. Harrison was seated on a raised platform so as to appear above all those around him. When he offered him a place, Tecumseh refused and sat on the ground, claiming that the arms of Mother Earth were the best place for Indians to sit. This gesture disarmed Harrison, who knew right away that he was dealing with a leader like no other. Harrison used his old verbal tactics to try to convince Tecumseh that no wrong had been done in the sale of Indian lands, and that Tecumseh was to blame for the hostility between them and the whites. But he soon realized that Tecumseh would not be intimidated by fancy rhetoric or bought with false promises. He replied with a lengthy speech of how the United States had failed to honor its numerous treaties and claimed that all tribes had a right to the land. He famously said, Sell a country? Why not sell the air, the clouds, and the great sea, as well as the earth? Did not the Great Spirit make them all for the use of his children? I am Shawnee. I am a warrior. I am the master of my own destiny. Harrison and the Indians were spellbound. Despite Tecumseh's display of power and conviction, neither side would change its position. They would eventually hold another council, and Tecumseh, realizing how his relations with Harrison were reaching their breaking point, brought many warriors with him for protection. Harrison believed that Tecumseh was planning to kill him and promptly had his own group of soldiers assembled in case of an attack. Though no fighting ensued, Tecumseh gave Harrison a piece of information that would ultimately prove disastrous. He told him he was planning to be away visiting the Creek tribe, though he was actually gathering more warriors. Harrison, knowing the Shawnee leader would be absent, began to formulate his own plot that he hoped would finally quell the growing Indian threat. While Tecumseh was away, he planned to destroy Prophetstown. Harrison saw that as an opportunity also to, you know, strike at 
uh, Prophetstown and thanks to Tawa while Tecumseh was away, he'd have less of a, a less formidable opponent to deal with. And he, he figured, well, if, if Tecumseh ultimately was creating a, an alliance that would uh, be a military one, better to, to attack before he brought the southern tribes into his fold. So it was a combination of, of two. Uh, it, it was, you know, a preempt, preemptive strike to um, prevent a larger alliance than, than already existed from forming and also to further his own political interests. But there's no question that he was the aggressor. While the prophet remained at Prophetstown, Tecumseh traveled to tribe after tribe in an effort to recruit more followers. Over a six-month period, he would cover a staggering 3,000 miles in what became the largest effort to form a pan-tribal confederacy ever undertaken. His legendary powers of oration and sheer presence were on full display, even prompting a witness to write, I wish it was in my power to do justice to the eloquence of this distinguished man, but it is utterly impossible. An aide to a future enemy would later write, he presented in his appearance and noble bearing one of the finest-looking men I have ever seen. In one of his most famous speeches, Tecumseh referred to the other tribes as brothers, saying that, We must be united. We must smoke the same pipe. We must fight each other's battles. And more than all, we must love the Great Spirit. He is for us. He will destroy our enemies and make all his tribes happy. He had some success, though many rejected his call to unity. Some leaders had become too dependent on foreign trade, while others were simply jealous of Tecumseh and Tangswatawa's success. In one particular case, he let the leader of a village known as Tukabachi know exactly how he felt about his refusal. He said that he would go to Fort Detroit, stamp his foot, and shake down every house in the village. Meanwhile, Harrison had amassed a force of 1,000 soldiers to launch his attack. Tecumseh had instructed the prophet to do whatever was needed to avoid bloodshed. Unfortunately, the warriors living at Prophetstown were overly eager to prove their worth and launched various raids. Harrison would use this as an excuse to attack the village, claiming it was a defensive strike. Tankswatawa had received word of Harrison's movements and managed to evacuate the weaker members of Prophetstown but it still remained vulnerable. He was not a military leader, but nonetheless he did what he could to prepare the few warriors left for battle. At dawn of November 7th, scattered gunshots rang out around Harrison's troops. Realizing that the Prophet's forces had them nearly surrounded, chaos ensued. The fight, which would become known as the Battle of Tippecanoe, lasted only two hours, with the American casualties far outnumbering the Indians. Nonetheless, the Americans held their ground and defeated the remaining Indian forces. Once the battle was over, Harrison ordered his remaining troops to plunder and burn Prophetstown to the ground, along with all remaining food sources. The Battle of Tippecanoe changed everything. From that day forth, Tankswatawa lost all power and respect he once held, and Tecumseh was now on his own. He was supposedly so enraged with his brother that he grabbed his hair and threatened to kill him. Harrison became a national figure, even earning the nickname Tippecanoe, a moniker he would use in the famous political slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler II. Tecumseh, always reluctant to enact mindless violence, now had to fully embrace the reality that war was the only way to peace. Hey, uh, hey, uh, hey, uh, hey, uh, hey, 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 hey,
Despite these devastating setbacks, fortune would soon favor the Shawnee leader. The War of 1812 had broken out, and the British were once again looking to align themselves with the Indians. An army of 2,000 Americans, led by famed Brigadier General William Hull, invaded Canada on July 12th, with Hull promising instant death to any white man who fought alongside Indians. Though the Canadians were terrified, Tecumseh was only empowered to keep up the fight. When the time for battle came, Hull had retreated. Some claimed he was poorly supplied and had no way to gather reinforcements, but it was likely that Hull's confidence had become eroded by fear of Indian threat. Hull eventually ended up in Fort Detroit with a weakened and demoralized group of soldiers. Tecumseh knew it was time to take the fort. He needed the aid of the British, and fortunately, he found it in Brigadier General Isaac Brock. The two men became fast friends with a deep mutual respect. Brock compared Tecumseh to the legendary Napoleonic Wars General Duke of Wellington, even going so far as to write later, a more sagacious or more gallant a warrior does not, I believe, exist. Tecumseh was equally impressed with Brock. Upon learning that Brock wanted to capture Fort Detroit as much as he did, Tecumseh, who had seen his fair share of disappointing British leaders, proclaimed happily, This is a man! William Hull went on to surrender Fort Detroit, which was arguably the highest point of Tecumseh's campaign. Tecumseh's Indian Alliance, which actually at its peak consisted of approximately 6,000 warriors and their families. And you contrast that to the largest alliance that was ever composed of, of Indians in the West, intertribal alliance, was that put together by Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull and other and some Cheyenne leaders at the Little Bighorn uh, in the Great Sioux War. And that alliance maybe comprised between 2,000 and 2,500 warriors. You see that Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa's alliance at its peak was the largest that uh, the United States ever ever faced. And uh, they, Tecumseh and the British defeated the largest, the, the actually the only American army of consequence at the Battle of Detroit in 1812. And they, they, uh, they occupied all of Michigan um, and uh, a sliver of, of Northern Ohio for almost a year. Following the victory at Fort Detroit, Brock was transferred away and would ultimately die in the War of 1812. His replacement was Brigadier General Henry Proctor. Though he and Tecumseh began their relations cordially, Proctor proved himself to be less of a man than Brock. A weak leader with no nerve for fighting, he believed the Americans had the upper hand at the Battle of Lake Erie and promptly ordered a retreat. Tecumseh berated him for his cowardice and made attempts to spur Proctor to act, even going so far as to request that the British leave their guns with the Indians if they planned to retreat. By this point, the high spirits of Tecumseh's followers and the sense of nearly achieving their goal had begun to waver. His alliance began to crumble with that occurrence, and uh, most Indians didn't want to follow the British into Canada. They were they did not see themselves as fighting for the British, and neither did Tecumseh really, but he believed that, well, you know, I've come this far, I may as well see it through. And by the time of the Battle of Thames, his alliance had dwindled from 6,000 warriors to about 500. And the British only had about 350 to 400 troops uh, available. The Indians and the British, under Proctor's command, eventually made it to the Thames River, where it was believed that a proper defense could be staged. 
By this time, Tecumseh's old rival William Henry Harrison had amassed yet another large force to meet them at the Thames. He outnumbered the British and Tecumseh three to one. The fight to come would determine once and for all which side would be victorious. Unfortunately, due to the superior American numbers and Proctor's incompetence, the Battle of the Thames was a disaster waiting to happen. The British formed up uh, a very thin line of battle uh, just on the, west, uh, the north bank of the Thames. The Indians uh, were on the, on the right. They were uh, aligned, Tecumseh aligned them in a very swampy area. And the, the British commander was rather inept in his deployment of troops. Uh, Harrison outnumbered them. He launched his first attack against the British uh, mounted charge of Kentucky uh, uh, riflemen, and the British just, I mean, they just folded like, I mean, they like a wet noodle. I mean, they, they collapsed very quickly. And it wasn't a case of the British willfully uh, abandoning the Indians, but they were just driven from the field. Uh, they were so badly outnumbered that they could not form their normal solid ranks uh, uh, of regulars. And so they were just pulled over by the mounted, the mounted Americans. Before the fighting began, Tecumseh said to Proctor, Father, tell your men to be firm and all will be well. Father, have a big heart. Despite overwhelming odds, Tecumseh bravely used his words to encourage those around him one final time. The battle lasted only half an hour, and by its end, Tecumseh lay dead. Who killed him and where his body was buried remain mysteries that will likely never be solved. The Battle of the Thames gave the United States control of the territory until the Treaty of Ghent ended the War of 1812 a year later. Harrison would go on to become president in 1840, though would only remain in office for one month, the shortest presidency in American history. Some claim that the Prophet had cursed Harrison after Tecumseh's death, leading some to speculate that Harrison had been given Tecumseh's curse. The Prophet fell out of favor with the British and Indians alike after the Treaty of Ghent, and would eventually end up in modern-day Kansas. He returned to drinking and bitterness in old age, and died in 1836. Because no other leader had anything approaching the talent, power, or leadership skills to take his place, Tecumseh's dream of a pan-tribal confederacy died with him at the Thames. Western expansion continued, and his homelands became part of the United States. Though his dream failed, his memory still lives on. From the moment he died, he became an almost mythic figure, being immortalized in numerous tributes, poems, and art. Some compared his life story to the tales of King Arthur, and even the Greeks and the Romans before him. Many historians continue to speculate as to what would have happened had Tecumseh succeeded in his goal. Yet at the heart of the myths, legends, and rumors lies a man that even his numerous enemies considered an extraordinary human being. I think what's, what's particularly remarkable about him is his ability to persevere. Even though he was rejected by the vast majority of his own tribe, his own people, he was able to overcome that. His talk of unity uh, was so compelling that he was, he was able to draw support from far and wide, including uh, a number of, of warriors as far south as the Creeks in modern-day Alabama. And also, I think his, his, his humanity uh, was manifest, is, is manifest throughout his life story. 
and never never came to hate whites like like some American Indians, or you know, justifiably so. Did he never he never was a hater. He never was a he maintained his his, his sense of humanity all through his life. And that's greatly to his credit also. Tecumseh was a living embodiment of everything that makes a leader great. He was well aware of his power and high standing, yet was always a servant to his people. He was a fierce fighter, yet astounding in his mercy. He enjoyed time to himself, yet could rally thousands of warriors to his cause. He could hold his own in a skirmish or a hunt, yet remained dignified in speech, dress, and manner. He understood that fighting was just as much about words as it was about weapons. Perhaps the reason Tecumseh became one of the greatest leaders in Native American history is because he knew that greatness could not be achieved alone, but only with the strength that comes from unity. A single twig breaks, but the bundle of twigs is strong. Let us form one body, one heart, and defend to the last warrior our country, our homes, our liberty, and the graves of our fathers. Tecumseh, Shawnee Tribe. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Einig and edited by Jamie Adams. Special thanks to Peter Cousins, historian and author of the best-selling books Shenandoah 1862, The Earth is Weeping, and Tecumseh and the Prophet. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Men on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men and give us a follow. Tune in next time for episode 2, where we explore the preservation of John Muir.